Tom Kearney Show on News Radio 630 WCTF and 98.5 FM. Tom Kearney here, and uh, tonight we observe uh, the commemoration of an anniversary. The anniversary is actually on Saturday, but this is as close as we can get to it. And I get to talk to one of my favorite uh, guests. Uh, he's been appearing with us, oh, it must have been 30 plus years now. He's Dr. Joe Cadell, professor of history, uh, itinerant scholar. He teaches at this. It's, um, Joe, am I still right about this? We haven't talked about this in so long. You're at, you teach some at NC State and some at the University of Chapel Hill. Is that yeah, correct? I'm, I'm, my physician's at UNC, and I come over and teach. Uh, John, you need to jack him up because I really am not going to be able to hear it as it is now. Uh, speak again, Joe. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, that's better. I, that's All better. right. It's, it's a little light, but I can't. I can't hear you. So, am I right that you're teaching at both of those institutions? Yeah, I, my my regular positions at Carolina, and I uh, come over and uh, and teach um, um, military history, naval history at State. I do a, a course at State uh, each semester. Well, the anniversary we're going to commemorate is one that comes along Saturday, seventy-six years, I believe, if my math is right, since uh, the D-Day invasion of Europe. Dr. Goodell uh, is going to talk with us tonight uh, about the background to the uh, the uh, uh, invasion of Europe, I guess starting maybe back in uh, 1943 when the plan started to firm up to do the invasion, or wherever he wants to jump in. But uh, we do like to commemorate the important anniversaries, and certainly that was an important anniversary. Dr. Goodell's pedigree is that he... Uh, is from Aberdeen, North Carolina, so he's a, a Tar Heel born and a Tar Heel bred, and he takes it one step further by being a graduate of the University at Chapel Hill, where he got his undergraduate degree, and then he drove up the road about 10 miles to Duke and got a Ph.D. in, in history. Right, Dr. Cadell? Yes, sir. And so uh, here he is tonight uh, to talk with us about the background to D-Day 76 years ago. The anniversary would be this Saturday. Uh it, it seems like, Joe, that the idea of an invasion of Europe was was there always, and that the Russians in particular had been pressing for it to take some of the pressure off. And yeah. uh, But it was, uh, I read today, sort of in late December when they started formulating the actual plans. Now, uh, is that right, and where do we go from there? Well, yeah, like most military uh, plans, they have uh, a long history. Uh, even before Pearl Harbor, you know, we had those joint staff talks with the British, in uh, 41, secretly, the British uh, chiefs of staff came over to Washington and met with our chiefs uh, about what would happen if we did enter the war. And we, we promised them that we would do Europe first, that if we in, got involved in the war in the Pacific, we were watching the Japanese expansion. And if uh, we got into the war, uh, we were worried about, um, you know, the British had survived the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. But uh, the Germans were only 20-some miles across the channel. Uh, Britain was obviously uh, a forward operating base for us. Uh, the German army was on the outskirts of Moscow and Leningrad. And so if we, you know, we really needed to, to take the pressure off the Allies by, by Europe first. After Pearl Harbor, uh, we even had a plan for 42. Um, uh, it was a, a, a sledgehammer plan. It was called Sledgehammer. And it was kind of a... a uh, an emergency um, uh, scenario where if it looked like the Soviets were going to collapse, that we'd be able to put at least a division or a division and a half ashore in France to divert the Germans, take some pressure off of them. But 
That was a pretty wild scene. And from then on, we and the British were disagreeing uh, about the best approach to bring the war to the Germans in Europe. The British wanted the uh, southern route. They kept pushing for us coming through the Mediterranean. Churchill kept using that expression, soft underbelly. And we kept arguing that the shortest way to Germany from Britain was across the Channel and across Northwest Europe. So when we talk about strategy in World War II, I always tell my students, uh, we had to decide whether we were going to do Europe first or the Pacific first. Uh, we actually did both at the same time. Uh, we, we told the, the British that we would do Europe first. We ended up fighting both wars simultaneously. In Europe, we had to decide between the Mediterranean or Northwest Europe. Um, we did both. And then same thing in the Pacific. We had to do Central Pacific or Southwest Pacific. We did both. So the secret to American strategic planning in World War II was just say yes. Uh, we, we really did follow multiple axes, and D-Day was arguably the most important. I guess one of the things that I would want to ask, and if I'm going off down the wrong road here, you just pull me back and you, you steer, but uh, how, the, how, how did they construct the leadership of this effort, and, and who was involved in it? I, I know Ike ultimately has a big part, yeah. part in it, and he had... And I think some success in the invasion of North Africa. Yeah, that's uh, if right. If I remember correctly, but uh, you're absolutely how did, right. How did, how did they decide who was going to run the show? Well, it, it was his his ability to put together um, complex plans. Uh, you know, he had no real had no good combat experience. He had not been in France in World War One, but he was known to be a very very uh, intelligent, capable officer. He's very good at planning. He's very good at, uh, at working with people. And he put together a plan that really impressed General Marshall, the chief of staff. He had worked for Marshall. Marshall had a, a very high opinion of him. And Marshall kept giving him the opportunity to show what he could do in planning. And you're right. He put together plans that ultimately became Torch, the landing in North Africa in November of 42. And uh, some of the planning that had actually gone into Sledgehammer, that, that uh, original plan, that, that actually went into, some of, some of that got uh, modified and used for Torch. And, um, and and Eisenhower showed his ability in, in command in North Africa. And then the British had already put together uh, a, a planning headquarters under a General Morgan. And um, he, um, he was uh, putting together a plan for a uh, cross-channel invasion. And they got the, the basics down. And it was a, it was a, a, a joint uh, or a combined, combined being more than one nation's uh, uh, people working on it. A combined planning staff, and then Eisenhower came in and, um, and took over what had been the Cossack was what they called it before, and then became Shape Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces Europe. And when Eisenhower took over that, he had uh, a British deputy. He had a British Air Force deputy, a guy named Tedder, um, who was in many ways a, a British Eisenhower. He was easygoing. He got along with people. He was uh, very capable. Um, but had an air commander, um, a British officer, uh, and a, uh, a naval commander for the for the naval operation, another British officer, and then they had the ground force commander was Montgomery, Field Marshal Montgomery, and um, so you had an American at the top, and you had uh, uh, British officers in, the, in the, the positions right under that, and they continued to do the planning. You faded a little bit there. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's... Uh, but one 
from from as the history of this unrolls, I have to ask about how Montgomery felt felt about all of this at this point. <laughs> well, Montgomery probably would, would have liked to have been the overall commander, um, and there was a very delicate uh, balance here because um, the, the Churchill understood that the, the American economic might, logistical uh, manpower, uh, everything that we had to contribute meant that you really needed an American at the top. And uh, uh, Montgomery was not necessary. Yeah, men like serving under Montgomery. Um, he, he tended to be, the men that served under Montgomery liked him. He did not like to, to lose the lives of his men. He was very careful. But um, he was uh, always kind of a, 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 a sand spur was what one, I think one officer described him, um, uh, to, um, to people that he had to work for. He was uh, always thought he uh, had a better idea than the people over him, so he could be very irascible. But um, he was, um, no doubt about it, also a very capable officer, and uh, he would have liked to have, have had a uh, had more control. Yeah, you know, there's an old uh, joke. I, I'm, you know, I think we talk about this every year. We talk about D-Day. That um, the British problem was with the Americans. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be one and a half million American soldiers in Britain by uh, by D-Day. Uh, almost as many American soldiers, almost exactly the same number of American soldiers as there were British soldiers in Great Britain. And um, the British complained that the Americans were overfed, overpaid, over here, um, and that this uh, overfed, overpaid, oversexed, and over here, and that that was their problem. The American response was that the, the British problem was they were underpaid, underfed, undersexed, and under Eisenhower. Um, but, but usually that was in... in Taken in, in good fun. I mean, most of the, that didn't usually turn into too much of a series. I mean, never made himself very popular with the British because he was he would listen. Uh, he did not show national favoritism. He tried to come up with the best plan. Um, you know, Montgomery would behind his back say all sorts of things, but even Montgomery learned after a while you could only push Eisenhower so far. But underneath that smiling exterior, uh, Eisenhower had his limits, and he he was a you know, what people describe as an excellent coalition commander. He was really good at getting people from different backgrounds, different services, different nations to work together. I can't think of anybody else that could have could have done that. Uh, well, let's think about what what's going to uh, a couple of questions. We need to take a break, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm prepping you for this, and 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 of course you can at any point choose your own way to go. But one thing is they're going to have to decide where to do it, right? And uh, also. One of the things that fascinates me about this, and that we've talked a lot about over the years, is the diversions that were built into this, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rubber tanks and all that right. stuff, and driving around England sending false uh, messages at, at the, near the last moment. But those are some other topics to approach as we commemorate on News Radio 680 WPTF D Day, which occurred on June 6th. Uh, 1944, I keep thinking I'm going to give the wrong day, uh, 1944, 76 years ago this Saturday. And Dr. Joe Cadell, our resident military historian since 1991, is our guest tonight, helping us to understand what happened. And we hope you'll stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. We're back. I'm on this uh, Wednesday night, June 3rd, June 6th. Saturday will be the 76th anniversary of the invasion of Europe that is known as D-Day, and uh, we're commemorating that tonight by a visit from our resident military historian, Dr. Joe Cadell. And we're we're to the point now where uh, 
where uh, the decision decisions are being made. Uh, we've made the decisions about who the leadership would be have been made, and and one of the things, as I suggested just before we left, is exactly where is the attack going to take place. But there are lots of other aspects of this story that are interesting too, and uh, one of those I think always is the, the diversion, the sort of magic that went on. Dr. Cadell, are you ready? Yeah, no, that's and those those do go together rather well because. The, the Germans uh, were not sure that they knew the invasion could come anywhere from Norway to the Bay of Biscay. Um, they they weren't, weren't totally sure. And the Allies indeed looked at all of those. Uh, there was a possibility of, of coming into uh, to Norway and coming across Denmark and attacking Germany from the north. Uh, that was a remote possibility, but it was at one point that at least contingencies were planned. At the end of the day, they decided one of the most important factors, you had to be within range of Allied air cover. You want to make sure you have control of the air over the beaches. You just can't really conduct an amphibious operation unless you have really good control of the air, command of the air, because the, the invasion fleet is just so vulnerable. Um, you know, a boat shipping, uh, a shipping and, and landing craft sitting off the beach, troops on the beaches, it would just, you know, you really need to be able to establish an air umbrella. Uh, Normandy is uh, just a, a, across the channel about 100 miles from the English coast. And it's a very you know, well within the umbrella that the Americans and British could put up. Um, they didn't want to be too close to the German center of gravity. Um, the Germans had two armies in France, total of uh, 50, 55 divisions, somewhere in there. And um, uh, most of them were to the east, uh, closer to the German border. And, of course, the closer you got to Germany, the more uh, the German reinforcements, uh, they could transfer forces from the east. And so being a little further to the west, made, again, Normandy looked like a good deal. Um, good beaches. If you've been along the Channel um, Coast, you know that some beaches are uh, 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 shingle and rock and gravel, pebble. Um, you want a sand beach. You want it to be um, uh, uh, gradually shelving. You want a certain tidal range so landing craft can come in and then be you know, floated off again with a rising tide. Um, so they, they looked at all those uh, contingencies. You wanted river barriers, you know, east uh, to, to the to the east of Normandy. You have a whole series of rivers run across France. That um, if Allied air power can drop the bridges, knock those bridges out, it'll make it hard for the Germans to bring up reinforcements. Um, you also want to be near a port. They had thought about maybe attacking a port, yeah, you because know, you need to be able to offload you know, men and supplies very very quickly when you do an invasion, conduct an invasion. Um, the whole trick is to get your forces ashore faster than the enemy can bring up reinforcements. Um, the problem with the port, um, they're easily defended. They can be sabotaged. Um, they had tried to take a small port back in August of 42, kind of an experiment. Uh, uh, this was at Dieppe in August of 1942, and it, it was a disaster. They learned a lot there. One of the things they decided was they weren't going to try to land directly in a port. They would land on open beaches but then hopefully take a port, Cherbourg, uh, Le Havre, other beaches, uh, other ports were nearby. They thought they'd be able to take those. Turns out uh, they still brought in most of their supplies over the beaches of Normandy uh, right through the end of the campaigns in Europe. But that's how they, they kind of decided on Normandy, combination of factors. Didn't they decide, uh, I may be jumping ahead, to, to create those artificial harbors, mm -hmm. so to speak? Uh, that's right, the ball berries. like that? The mulberries that they created, mulberries, these yeah. were big uh, cement caissons and, and uh, really a breakwaters. They sank some, some, um, some ships to, to create a breakwater. They 
built two of them, one for the American beaches and one for the British beaches. Um, and a storm came in, in in late June and wrecked the American mulberry, and so the supplies had to come in through the British. They also had a thing called Pluto, uh, the pipeline uh, under the ocean, where they laid uh, uh, fuel lines underneath the English Channel. Uh, they ended up with 18 of those uh, between uh, 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 the area there in Normandy up to the Pas de Calais, and they pumped an amazing amount of fuel uh, to support the armies uh, as they drove across France. But, you know, because there were so many options, the Germans weren't sure where the Allies would come ashore, and the Allies took advantage of that. That's what you've been talking about. It's called you know, Bodyguard, which was a collection of deception plans. And they had deception plans that were designed to let the Germans think that there'd be another invasion, um, perhaps we might invade Spain, which was neutral but, but pro-German, that we might land in uh, uh, Norway, that was fortitude north. Uh, we had uh, false plans for landing in, uh, in, in Greece um, and a variety of other places in the Mediterranean. And then the, the one, the big one, uh, is Fortitude South. And Fortitude South was the, the, the idea that we would land in the Pas de Calais up there by the Straits of Dover, the eastern end of the English Channel. The channel is only about 20 miles across there. Um, it was, the, many people thought, the most likely a place for the Allies to land, the shortest distance across, very close to, to Allied air bases, um, much uh, shorter uh, uh, shipping lanes to protect. Um, th- that was just the obvious place. It's also closer to Germany. So you'd be that much closer to driving into Germany. And so Fortitude uh, South um, came up with all these uh, uh, false plans. They, they passed false plans to the Germans. Um, they bombed in that area to make it look like we were interested in bombing uh, targets around the Pas de Calais. Uh, we also created something called the First United States Army Group, PUSOC, and it didn't exist. There was no such organization, but there were all these divisions, uh, uh, American divisions, um, and supposedly under General Patton. And what we had were all those, you mentioned the rubber tanks, had rubber tanks and jeeps and trucks and artillery pieces, uh, uh, we had uh, landing craft, inflatable landing craft, and uh, we also had these uh, guys riding around in jeeps with uh, radio sets, and they would ride all over southeastern England, down in Kent, that area, uh, near Dover and so forth, and they would drive around talking to one another on the radio using different call signs, and they would go to various you know, positions and transmit, and then they'd go to another position and transmit using a different frequency, different call signs. And so the Germans were convinced that uh, we had all these divisions uh, that didn't really exist. And matter of fact, they still, as late as July of 1944, still thought that First U.S. Army Group was sitting there in southeastern England. So even after the invasion, the Germans believed that Normandy was a diversion. They thought that the real landings were a diversion that the real landings hadn't taken place yet. And so they held some units in reserve for several weeks. Um, and it's amazing, after the war was over and we got to look at the German uh, order of battle maps, what they thought we had, uh, that, that that had fooled them even after we had landed in Normandy. They continued to be fooled by that, which is one of the most well, remarkable deception operations in, in military history. Let us stop right now because we're approaching the time when we need to check on the news, but we're about halfway through our program tonight, and we're commemorating the 
preparations for D-Day. Maybe we'll have a little bit of D-Day itself here coming up. But right now we need to check the news. News Radio 680 WBS 933. It is Wednesday night. It is June 3rd in the year 2020. But some 76 years back this Saturday, the the, uh, invasion of Europe known as D-Day, or part, part of something known as Operation Overlord. Perhaps Dr. Joe Cadell, our guest tonight, who's uh, talking to us about the preparation for D-Day, and perhaps we'll we'll sort of enter in now to a little bit of the, the accomplishment of D-Day and see how, how it worked out. Joe, uh, one of the things that occurs to me in choosing Normandy is that the, the entire southern part of uh, England is open to, to a straight line to, to Normandy. They don't have to traverse the coast, but go straight southeast from Portsmouth and places like that. I always do south, yeah. Uh, they really do. And, um, but, you know, it was um, um, 100 miles was, was no real problem. It gave them enough room to, to kind of get their convoys organized and so forth. You got almost 7,000 ships involved in this. And just the amount of time it took for them to load these. We were talking about what was going on, you know, before the 6th of June, like you know, 76 years ago, like today, the 3rd of June. And the loading began, uh, some of the ships had been loaded for months. Uh, they had all sorts of, of things in there that uh, that they had already loaded that they knew they were going to need, ships that were already loaded. Um, you know, you, it's called combat loading. The last thing in is the first thing that's going to come out. You know, when you load a ship for, for, for going on an amphibious operation or going ashore, you want to make sure that you, you kind of load in reverse. So the last thing you're going to need goes into the ship first, and the thing you're going to need first, like water, ammunition, and so forth, you know, you want it to be on top. So there's a lot of planning involved. Just even after you knew what you were going to take, even after you brought over these, you know, literally millions of tons of supplies, you needed to have it in the right order. Well, they begin the final loading of the ships on the 30th of May. And so from the 30th of May through the 5th. Now, you know, the invasion was supposed to be on the 5th. And uh, it was... Um, um, everything was going along in that direction. Um, they were loading on the 1st and the 2nd. On the 3rd, I don't know if you, you know about this. I, I don't know if you've ever even talked about this. It only came, I think I ran across this in the last year, that on the 3rd of June, late in the afternoon, right in the middle of the Belmont State, um, there was a, a flash report that came out um, uh, on Associated Press. Um, Associated Press, um, so, uh, Ted Hussing was the reporter covering the Belmont State, and Newsflash, this is on the 3rd, um, Associated Press reported that the invasion of France had begun. And they, they um, um, couldn't, didn't have any other information, so they went back to cover the race. Uh, they interrupted uh, the ball game. Uh, uh, the, the, um, there was a, several ball games were, were taking place, and uh, listeners all over the country, said millions, some 55 radio stations picked it up. NBC and Mutual Broadcasting picked it up and all announced that the invasion had begun. Um, and um, nobody could, you know, was, about two hours later they rescinded it and said this was a mistake. What had happened was in London, a young Associated Press, uh, um, uh, I don't know if she was a reporter or just a typist, she was preparing... Um, they knew the invasion was somewhere in, in the near future, and they were preparing a, a story 
and she was on the teletype getting this all set up. And when she hit the on switch to turn it on, she didn't realize she was actually, you know, online. And it went out from London. And it was two hours or so um, that um, um, before they were able to rescind this. And what was interesting is that more people heard this um, broadcast than heard uh, Wells' War of the World uh, story. And yet... Nobody talks about it. It almost, you know, hardly ever gets mentioned. Very few histories of D-Day cover this. And the theory that some historians have put out is that the real event um, came just, you know, two and a half days later, and that just kind of erased the <laughs> the memory of the, of, the, of the false story. Well, it's the first, first I've heard of it. Yeah. And one of the things that we have talked about off and on over the years, and that I've always been interested in, since I used to want to be a weatherman, was the weather and yeah. the invasion. I was in, we, Mrs. Kearney and I were in Ireland one year. In fact, it was uh, uh, 1994, the 150th uh-huh. anniversary, I think. Right. And they had an article in the in the Westport Gazette or whatever the little town in Ireland was about a, a weather observer out in the middle of nowhere in Western Ireland who gave them a heads-up on the front that was supposed to be coming in. I don't know whether that's actually true or not, but, but anyway, that was the story they were putting out on, on uh, June uh, well, 6, 1994. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, he, uh, undoubtedly, I mean, weather uh, observers in Ireland played a role, but um, it was a little more complicated than that. It was the, um, yeah, the weather in the Northern Hemisphere goes from west to east, and um, the more data you have, the further up weather, the better you're forecasting. And in the war, you don't you don't share that information. You don't you stop broadcasting weather reports from from Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and you know, Greenland and Iceland and so forth. You know, the Germans tried to put weather stations in Greenland during the war, um, and the Coast Guard ran them out before Pearl Harbor. Um, weather is very very important for military operations. My students used to ask me why is weather so important, and I. I always like to point out, wars are, are fought out of doors. You know, they, they, it really doesn't matter. Air operations in particular, but naval, all, all military operations are affected by the weather. Um, and we had better weather forecasting because we were getting weather data all the way back to the Aleutians, right? The weather, you know, so the, by the time it got to the United Kingdom, all those fronts, all those lows and highs and everything else, we had a pretty good handle on it. And it was a British Air Force meteorologist, a guy named Stagg, James Stagg. He was Eisenhower's weather guy. And on the morning of the 4th of June, he came in with, it was one of those, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And his, the bad news was that the weather is going to deteriorate. It was already uh, you know, going downhill. And he said, we're going to have darn near gale force winds. We're going to have high surf. Uh, airborne operations won't be possible landings won't be possible um, on the 5th. The good news is is that there's going to be a window. It's, it, the weather is just as, as fast as it got, gets getting bad, it's going to clear up, and we're going to have a window uh, of 72 hours or more where the weather will be acceptable. And so uh, even though I'm recommending against landing on the 5th, uh, you should be able to go on the 6th. So Eisenhower, immediately based on that, postponed the landing. And then that evening, around uh, uh, the evening of the 4th, he met with Stagg again, and Stagg said, yep, looks like the forecast is holding up. 
weather's going to get better. And it did. Um, Eisenhower was absolutely right. The Germans thought the weather was going to be much too bad for major operations in the Channel on the 6th. As you may know, Rommel wasn't even in, in France. He'd gone home to his wife's birthday. Uh, General Rommel, Field Marshal Rommel, actually, uh, the co- German uh, commander there, Normandy, he had decided the weather was too bad. He didn't really need to be there. And uh, it was because the Allies had better better weather forecasting. Um, it's also why they required German U-boats, German submarines out in the Atlantic, to, uh, to come up to the surface and take weather readings and, and broadcast those every day because the Germans just really needed better weather data because they just weren't getting it. We, we weren't broadcasting any of that. Uh, we, the Canadians, the Brits, you know, we, that was a state secret during the war. And so eventually, what, sort of what, what was the time frame of, of the issuance of GO, you know, for he for gave the go. He, he gave the go right then on, on, the, on the evening of the 4th. He gave the go on the evening of the 4th. And part of the reason was he knew that the right combination of, 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 of moon conditions, tidal conditions, so forth, uh, wouldn't come again until late June. And he couldn't be sure the weather would be better then. As a matter of fact, the weather was really horrible. That darn near hurricane came through at the end of June, and, and that's the one that wrecked the mulberries and so forth. Um, but um, Eisenhower decided he couldn't wait for that. And also, with all the men and equipment and everything already loaded, um, there was no way the Germans were, were not going to find out about this. They, they would find out that you know, we, we were ready to go. And that's uh, I wonder, uh, you know, one question I was going to ask you was, is there any sense that the German spies, some of whom may or may not have been turned by the British, but uh, any sense that they were sending, well, I'm certain they were sending some false information back to the Germans, but but that, how much did they know? I, I mean, if you've got a court, 1.4 million men and all that stuff's being loaded, if there was a German spy in England, he must have been aware that something was going on. Mm-hmm. No, that was why the deception was so important. As they said, you, you, you can't disguise the fact that there's an invasion coming. You can't disguise the fact that there's a, a massive preparation. So what you've got to do is, is make the uncertain as to, as to where and when. And uh, the double-cross system, the, the British had rounded up virtually every German agent in Great Britain. You know, impressive intelligence work. MI5, the British Counterintelligence Service, had rounded these people up, and they were sending back false information, which you, you just alluded to. You're absolutely right. And they were, they were also part of this deception. They were sending back. So the Germans were getting intelligence reports from the U.K., but it was, um, it was supporting the idea that this first U.S. Army group existed. It was supporting all this idea that the concentration was, was in the east near Dover. Um, so they were getting all kinds of false intelligence reports. It doesn't appear they were getting anything particularly accurate. Their photo intelligence was picking up those W tanks. It was picking up those W landing craft. And so they were getting a lot to look at. Some of it was real and some of it wasn't. And, you know, the whole point is deception can't go on forever. I mean, you can't, you can't fool someone forever. But all you need to do is fool them long enough to keep them from being able to react in time to be effective. And that's really what, what the Allied deception plans did. I guess you you cause them to pause, and you cause Rommel to make a decision like, well, I could stay here or I could go home to my wife's birthday party. I just I'll, I guess I'll do that, you know. Right. You get them to make that decision at the right time, then it hangs everything up. 
And, and you know, the funny thing is, even after I even after the landing took place, the Germans didn't bring up all their armor forces, their Panzer divisions, um, and they brought up some. And partly the problem was Allied command of the air Move, moving tanks by day was impossible. Uh, the British and American uh, air forces uh, were, were just really uh, very effective at taking them out as they tried to move by day. Um, and they could, but part of the problem was they kept expecting that second landing to take place at Calais. And so they were, they were very cautious about moving those, those units uh, to Normandy. And if they had, they also had some diverted elsewhere because they weren't totally sure what the, maybe those other Allied false plans might, might turn out to be true, which is all kind of fascinating to watch. It was a beautifully done deception plan. There's no question. Well, we need to pause again, take a break. When we come back, uh, anything else uh, about the preparations and the uh, developments of vis-a-vis landing vessels and stuff like that? But also, you know, Joe, I always like to talk about bibliography and maybe talk about Rick Atkinson's book and The Longest Day and things like that when we come back. 52 News Radio 680 WPTF, the Tom Kearney Show, with our guest, Dr. Joe Cadell, our resident military historian, commemorating and uh, looking back on the events leading up to uh, the preparation, that is, uh, of D-Day, which was June uh, 6, 1944, and the anniversary would be 76 years this Saturday, but we're not on on Saturday, so we in, I invited Dr. Cadell to be with us tonight. Dr. Cadell, uh, if there's any point that you feel like hasn't been made that needs to be made about tonight's topic, and if not, uh, you know, I always like to talk about good books that people could read, like The Longest Day and yeah. uh, Rick Atkinson's books that have to deal with World War Two. Both of those. Um, you know, it's funny because Cornelius Ryan's Longest Day is so old, but he did he did a really good job of going around interviewing uh, all those um, uh, people from, from you know, both sides and got first-hand accounts. And that's what makes The Longest Day, the movie, uh, rather good. Um, you know, historians, we, we always like to complain about movies. They're never accurate. There are always problems with them and so forth. But I've got to be honest with you, The Longest Day um, is, uh, you know, there are things to complain about, but it's pretty accurate. They all are all based on first-hand accounts of, of, of people who were there. Um, they did a good job. The same thing with Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Band of Brothers, uh, yeah, Ambrose, uh, and the the people from Easy Company. Uh, they they you know he worked with them. They but those are all you know very um, historians are very impressed with how well they stick, stuck to the the you know, try, try to make it as accurate as possible. But the books that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, Atkinson is great. Um, John Keegan, uh, Six Armies in Normandy, um, is quite good. Um, Russell Wigley, uh, uh, Eisenhower's lieutenant, uh, is also quite good, very comprehensive. I think Keegan is the more readable. Max Hastings is another one. Uh, I think it's, t- it's titled Overlord, I believe. Uh, Hastings and Keegan are both Brits, so they tell it from a certain you know, the, sort of British perspective. Um, you know, the British are cool, calm, and professional, and the Americans are emotional and and amateuristic, but <laughs> if you get beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, 
Um, but both of those are good works as well. I think. How, how about I can't think of his name, but he he got a little bit of fame in the Falklands War, and he's written several books about World War Two. Hastings. Max Say Hastings. Again? Yeah. Max Hastings wrote, a, wrote a, an account of the uh, uh, the Falklands War. Um, he was with the London Times, and he wrote uh, Overlord. He's written a work on Korea. Um, but uh, we've talked about him before. Yeah. And um, but then Carlo Desti, uh, Decision yeah. of Normandy is quite good. Um, those are all I think good works. Uh, you know, if you want to look into the planning, um, you know our friend Joe Hobbs, Professor Hobbs of North Carolina State University. Um, he and Stephen Ambrose edited the Ice Tower Papers, and Professor Hobbs did something that I still think is one of those brilliant things to, to have done with those papers. He collected all the letters that Eisenhower wrote to Marshall, uh, General Marshall, and that Marshall wrote to Eisenhower. And their correspondence, what, you know, what Eisenhower's in Britain, Marshall's back in Washington, and they're writing back and forth about, you know, how things are going and what they need to be planning and what they're doing. Anything that mattered, anything that was important, appears in those letters. And there's also personal things in there. I mean, they, you know, about the weather and about, uh, you know, how... How you know um, how Eisenhower is uh, uh, missing home and so forth and so on, um, but in there, uh, it's a really good overview of what the chief of staff of the United States Army and the American commander of this massive expeditionary force, what they're concerned about. The book is entitled "Dear General." Two words, "Dear General," because each of them wrote the other, "Dear General," and uh, Joe Hobbs, uh, Professor Hobbs. Um, wrote an introduction or a little you know, editor's note for each letter to kind of put context. And if you, you know, I, you know, if you're going to read one book about the planning, that would be it. And it's very readable. And I should point out, just in case uh, folks don't know it, the uh, late Joe Hobbs was for many years a professor uh, in the history department at NC State mm-hmm. University. And Joe Cadell, that is uh, the point where we need to wind everything up tonight, but I want to thank you for coming. This has been a especially fluid and straightforward presentation tonight, and uh, I enjoyed listening to it. And, well, I, I appreciate you letting me uh, be, be, be with you. I really do. Okay, well, take and, care of yourself, you and we'll be talking to you, okay? Take care of yourself. See you in a bit, Tom. Okay. Take Dr. care. Dr. Joe Cadell, professor of history, teaches at UNC and at uh, NC State. Uh, has long time been our military historian. Tomorrow night, part two of our recovery of the results of uh, Dr. Ed Funkhauser's necrology here on News Radio 680 WPTF.